0: Welcome to Blackbird episode number 41. My name is James and today I am thrilled to bring to you a chat I had with David Gornoski. David is, of course, the host of the podcast and radio show A Neighbor's Choice. I wanted to talk to David about his faith and his worldview, and how specifically Rene Girard's mimetic theory helped shape that. And then also just sort of like how he got to where he is, being that you know his podcast has kind of strangely morphed into this radio show why he would use like a legacy media platform when podcasting is all the rage now. And believe it or not, mimetic theory plays into it. Before we get into the interview, let me tell you again about BU Enterprises. Yoga instructor, mindfulness coach, and former guest on Blackbird, Juliet Nail, is waiting for you to hit her up so that she can welcome you back into your body. If you're interested in yoga, Pilates, breathing techniques, or even just learning how to recenter, Head to buenterprises.com and send her a message today. With that, here is my interview with David Gornoski. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you for inviting
0: me. Yeah, sure thing. So I first heard about you when you were running ads on Part of the Problem with Dave Smith, and then I heard you on Pete Q's show. And I wanted to talk about memetic theory and just sort of kind of the what thought has influenced you um, in your kind of unique worldview. I guess before we do that, though, why don't you introduce yourself, just kind of give a quick, here's who I am to the audience, so people who haven't heard of you or heard from you will know who we're talking to.
1: David Gronoski, I host A Neighbor's Choice, which is a radio program on FM, AM podcast and video stream. Uh, We look at, uh, examine the role of violence in society and we give people a platform who have become scapegoats of our society and we have a two-part model for the program problem which is politics and the solution which is innovation and storytelling and art Um, so it's creativity versus sacrifice that's Mm -hmm. the question of the show and it's called a neighbor's choice for a reason which is meant to Invoke a question in your mind, which is, what choice? Who's the neighbor? What neighbor? Why is the letter A in there? All of those things are meant to ask questions rather than tell you what to think. Some people in traditional radio industry would say, call it the David Granosky show. I said, no, we don't have time for that. We have time to get people to ask questions. That's what we need to do and get people to think, get outside of their comfort zone. And when we also have an online-only podcast called Things Hidden, which is our deep dive into anthropology and history and ethics. And then we pull from current events. So we do a uh, orchestra style where we go deep, deep into things like primitive cannibalism, and then we go back into current events. And then we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with guests or myself to explore how these things fit together so you can see the patterns of history. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also do uh, uh, Science and You, which is our physics segment we do on Thursdays with my chief science advisor, physicist Dr. You, who is a, a Galileo, to say the least, for physics. And we explore physics news and cosmology and chemical questions, all kinds of interesting stuff, just to take a break from the nonsense of politics. And we do health and nutrition interviews. I've been doing a lot with uh, Tucker Goodrich, who is an expert on seed oils and how problematic vegetable oils and the consumption of them are for our so-called diseases of civilization, which are the mm-hmm. chronic diseases that Western societies are plagued by on an epidemic level. So, yeah, those are some of the major uh, components of my media work. I also do films. I have a Things Hidden Film series where I do more of a deep dive conversation in a film setting. And then we do uh, I do articles
0: as well. And all of that's on a neighborschoice.com. Awesome. I don't think I had seen any of the films. That's definitely something that I'll have to dig into after this. I find you super fascinating. And you do all of this from a distinctly Christian like underpinning, right? Yes. Right. But see, that word Christian is is confusing for people. Yeah. But, it yeah. doesn't it doesn't come across as preachy or religious. It's more like I don't know, like anthropological, I guess, is, the, is, is really the only, right. the only way to describe it. It's, it's Christian humanism almost. Right, right.
1: And, that, and that's one of the things that we want to do is to, you know, it's funny, um, when you do public media, people tend to try to find a niche or a mm-hmm. silo that they want to stick into, right? So that, that's probably, you know, if I had picked, you know, I've just explained physics, nutrition, mm-hmm. anthropology, I mean, that's a mishmash on the surface, Right. But for me, I'm using Christianity as a kind of framework of thinking of a kind of an epistemology, if you will, for how do we process all Mm -hmm. these different fields of knowledge, right? And so it's one of those things where we're trying to reach the average Joe on radio, because when you're talking to people on radio, you're talking to people who don't know anything about your prior assumptions, And when you do a podcast, you're preaching to the choir, right? People who find your podcast, they find it because they search for keywords that the Blackbird podcast is known for. Yeah. Whether it's libertarianism or whatever it is that your favorite topics are, they find it. They're already kind of relatively aware of the topic before they engage. With broadcast, you're dealing with, you're casting a broad net. and You're going to catch an octopus. You're going to catch a catfish. You're going to catch a bunch of stuff in the midst of it. And um, so- it's always a trick to figure out that the balance between uh, if you're preaching only to the choir, then you're just getting a very fervent fan audience. But if you go for broadcast, you can catch the 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 person who's getting off work, who's an accountant, who's a police officer, who's a teacher, who's a librarian, and they've never even heard of any of the things that we're talking about. And now you get to kind of talk to the than the mainstream. And that's why I've spent so much time. Like if I had spent all my attention on online and just separated my focus, away, you know, cut my interest in radio off, it would have been a lot easier for me to just narrow in on the online podcast world. But it's important, I believe, for my message mm-hmm. to be able to engage the mainstream. So you just celebrated your third anniversary on the air, right? On FM and AM, yeah. yeah. So i have been I've been doing the podcast before that. I kind of started off as a podcast, okay. and then I transitioned to a broadcast, and then I added the—I kind of put the broadcast on the podcast. It's all confusing, but— No,
0: I like it. So how did you uh, get into radio from the podcasting realm? Did you just fill out a job application? I can't imagine that's how, you know, a new radio show starts. No, we, we kind of approached it like a startup, you know, like we're going to uh-huh. jump in and create
1: a— a team and a project and a whole, you know, uh, plan to engage. And the reason why is, again, you got to understand memetic theory, you have to look for the contrarian bet, not just because it's contrarian, but if everybody's running into podcasts, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm 32. How many millions of people are 32-year-old males doing a podcast? There's a lot. Maybe a million. (laughs) Who knows, right? Well, at least every libertarian in America, so... (laughs) But then you think about like, okay, well, how many 32-year-olds are doing a radio show? And radio is still a market that reaches more people than television does. Mm. But it's a kind of, because it's old, it has a, a redheaded stepchild effect to the consumer. Because it's an older medium. You remember they were singing about video killed the radio star back in the 80s. Yeah, So it's been passe for a long time. Because of its oldness, and we are a culture that's all about the latest tech, the late, especially when it comes to media. And so, you know, I just saw it as an underappreciated medium that people assume, well, that's what only old people listen to. Hmm. And I challenged that, and I said, perhaps the only old people listen to it because only old people are talking on those mediums, primarily, right? Only primarily baby boomer and older hosts are the ones that dominate the different stations around the country. So if you bring in a new voice with new ideas or relevant ideas for a newer generation, then the younger generation will show up on radio too. And, and think about it, for example, when you listen on radio, you can be in the comfort of your car knowing that somebody's not monitoring your content. Isn't that a nice feeling? It's an old throwback feeling that we've we don't even remember anymore for those who are stuck in the digital ecosystem. I mean, everything you do, you know, if you find a podcast through Google, Google's monitoring what you've looked at. And so you can't enjoy your uh, Britney Spears fan club podcast because, you know, you know, somebody's already figured out a way to to to, to uh, record your guilty pleasure and use it for your, uh, you know, marketing purposes that they have in mind. That's the same thing for Facebook and all these different places. So it's nice to have a media where you can hit the button on your car and you can listen to whatever you want without that privacy violation that is inherent in so much of the digital world. I know there are ways to get around that, but I think that's important. I also think it's important to have decentralized distribution of media, which radio stations still provide a kind of decentralized node network that you can get through. But it's a difficult market to get through because it's a, it's heavily regulated. Which makes the uh, you know, consolidation of stations in the hands of a few giant corporations. And because there's heavy regulation, it's hard to get into the market, it's hard to acquire a station. There's all these regulations you have to put in place to they put in place to kind of keep people out. And what that does is it creates a kind of quasi-government malaise to the mm. industry where they don't want to be nimble. They don't want to be innovative. So all the innovation is going into the world of, you know, the Silicon Valley apps and and podcasts and things like that, that's where so-called smart money dumps all of its money into. But if you go right up the middle into that older market, I believe there's a way to, to stand out in a sea of sameness, right? Which is important when you're developing a product. So if everybody's trying to imitate Rush Limbaugh because they're still stuck on a kind of stagnant market model. Rush Limbaugh was very talented, but, but people people just do kind of imitation. Like I am Rush Limbaugh, but for younger people yeah. or I'm Rush. And it's like, come on, that, that's, that's, a,
0: that's a market ripe for dis- disruption in my opinion, you see? Mm. Your show, I mean, it sounds like it's straight out of the 70s or 80s. It's really kind of neat. Like you've got like the synth music and it sounds like a radio show from like the pre-irony age, if that, if that makes sense. What do you mean by the pre-irony age versus our age today? I like to think of uh, like the late 90s, like maybe the Wachowskis or something like that as inventing irony as we know it today. There's nothing earnest anymore. And I don't know if you use throwback music and kind of just like even the way that you deliver your your lines and stuff, they sound like classic radio shows from the 20th century and I don't know if you're doing it earnestly or ironically, but it's very refreshing for my millennial years. Do you do that on purpose? Well, obviously I do it on purpose. I mean, I, I, I like the sound of
1: it, you uh-huh. know, I want to create a product that I want to listen to, you know? And so that's the thing is that, you know, if you, you know, when you create a product and again, you want to think about when you're creating a media product, how does this product make the customer feel? Mm-hmm. That's a simple question, right? Because when we, because we're so Cartesian when we do a podcast or whatever, we think about, okay, I think this, therefore I'm going to share this idea, <laughs> therefore they're going to, that's not, how does it make you feel? Mm-hmm. What is the experience of the customer when they're experiencing your product? And that is just something that, you know, you have to, it's an art, right? You you convey a feeling and your personality is going to come out and it's going to be a different dimension of your personality, depending on what you want to emphasize. But, you know, so much of the programming is negative. That's what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. It's all negative. Even if it sounds positive, it's still negative. And so when you listen to talk radio, if you listen to, you know, one of the big stars in talk radio, typically you're always going to come away, whether you listen for an hour or three hours or 10 minutes, feeling negative. Mm-hmm. Feeling like the only hope you have is just to vote for the Republicans in the midterms. Now, to me, if every program on the dial that is, is spoken word is negative, and if you listen to NPR, all they do is talk about the Delta area, the Delta area, yeah, you know. Yeah. That, so that's negative too. So, but every every spoken word product you listen to is negative, except for the, the FM morning shows where they talk about cartoonish stuff. Like, let's go to Kathy at the bar and see what she said over the weekend at the, you know, she had a a bender of alcohol. It, like, that's still, that's nihilistic too, right? So, mm. what about creating an experience that makes people feel positive, that makes people feel empowered, that makes people feel hopeful, and makes people feel childlike wonder about what's possible in the world? Now, you can't do that perfectly every day, but if that's the feeling that you want to create for your customer, then that's what you aim
0: for, you know? That explains then what was going to be one of my next questions was, you know, why physics on Thursday? Why not chemistry? And, or, or, you know, especially like why not epidemiology or some other branch of science that's more practical physics though, is, it's like the spark that creates awe. Right.
1: Right. Right. And that, and see, I, am I, I have a running thesis that I call it the jungle book effect, which is that in the uh, creation of the atom bomb, the different reigning paradigms of physics at the time became, became kind of enshrined in a holy of holy status. Yep. Basically, whatever was the dominant paradigm, they just said, okay, well, that's what helped us get the atom bomb. And whoever has the kind of knowledge that can create world-destroying fire rules the, the kingdom, <laughs> right? Because the Mowgli effect is he had the fire and the whole kingdom submitted to him because only he could could tame the fire and create it. And that's what I see the problem with physics is that there's some some fundamental assumptions about the reigning paradigms of physics that I think need to be challenged, but they were not properly challenged because, There's the Mowgli effect. Whoever is the sacred cast of people who were able to create such a technology that could destroy the world, we're just gonna like mimetically enshrine them, put them into an untouchable cast and just kind of defer to them as the holy of holies of science. And I find that to be using mimetic theory to be suspicious. Okay, wait a second. Maybe that's groupthink. Maybe that's crowd psychology more than it is actually completely warranted to not question some of the foundations of nuclear science, for example, or whatever. So if we don't challenge those sacred cows at the heart of so-called hard sciences, then maybe we'll never get past this dark age of stagnation in which people talk about how wages haven't grown since the 70s and all this stuff. We're fighting over lunchroom drama precisely because we don't have the courage to touch the untouchable. We don't have the courage to touch the Holy Trinity, so-called, of, of scientism, which would be the, ad, the atomic model. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Yu uh, is a Galileo who fundamentally questions the atomic model. So he starts from the for from the foundational points about how the atomic model is with the idea of an orbiting electron. He doesn't see that to be logically or evidence, there's no evidence to support that the electron is an orbital, uh, you know, uh, material. But he's a physicist and I let him speak as a physicist, challenging. So I kind of see him like a a Martin Luther type where he, you know, Martin Luther was a theologian's theologian and he had the uh, clout, the insider clout to be able to challenge the cathedral of his time in the same way Dr. Yu is a top-notch physicist And he is able to challenge some of the foundations of the dogmas of his field. And perhaps if we explore a map that is more accurate of the world, perhaps it can provide answers that will, as a downstream effect, alleviate the social pressures that keep us stuck in this constant lunchroom drama.
0: So this isn't original to me, but uh, I think I've heard that the development of atomic weapons was sort of the line of demarcation between the modern age and the postmodern age. That's when morality was completely taken out of science. And it led to, like, not just these weapons of mass destruction, but also things like gain-of-function research. You stopped asking, why do we do these experiments? Because the answer to that is because we can.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I like that.
0: It's, it's in some sense, that's where the last
1: vestiges of Christianity were shattered yeah, out of yes. science because Christianity is what birthed the modern science field. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that the world could be understood, that there was objective uh, discoverable truths about the natural world and that our minds had the capacity to be able to ascertain facts and truth mm-hmm. about the natural world and uh, and that we should discover scientific breakthroughs in the service of the world, of cultivating Uh, Humanity and cultivating the planet. Uh, And so, once you divorce those kind of moral assumptions behind uh, a field like science, what happens, right? You're going to get, like you just said, off the reservation in terms of ethics, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the complete ignoring of the metaphysical world that, you know, I mean, the fact that we dream and have thoughts and have emotions towards one another is proof enough that not everything is observable in the, in the physical universe. Yeah. All of these things are are spiritual. Yeah. Of course there's brain chemistry and there's synapses in your, in your nervous system and things like that, that lead to experiencing these things. But the experience itself is completely metaphysical. Right. Right.
1: And And that's something again, that we, um, we have a we have a a bad definition of religion and so that's what allowed us to throw out these things that supposedly religion was all about without realizing what we were doing that i'd take a more of a you know like a, a durkheim approach to the idea of religion being a social binding structure mm-hmm. right so it's and and so but see, today, religion means—see, we're so Cartesian, we don't even realize that we have these faulty ideas. Like, religion means I think blank, therefore I am, and it means mm-hmm. I think fanciful things that can't be proven by science. Yep. That's not what religion ever meant, but as long as you have a erroneous definition of religion, then religion still functions, but it's even worse than ever before because— it's designed so that you can't see that it's still functioning, right? That's why everybody says, I follow the science. And I say, what science are you following? You're following political science. That's what you're following. Um, you know, And politics and religion are synonymous, right? So mm-hmm. we're right back to where we started from. Uh, but we're actually in a worse spot in some ways because we don't have the epistemological humility to recognize that what we are doing is operating in the sacred. We're operating in the sacred when we say, I will trust Fauci, and you put your little yard sign out that you worship Fauci, and it's so stupid. It's so absolutely mind-numbingly stupid, but because we can't have the intellectual integrity to examine our culture because we're caught up in this mimetic blind spot, we're just Doing the same stupid thing, but hopefully, maybe all this stuff will be a breakthrough that we can yeah. start to
0: look at that. You know, I'm seeing a huge trend of people coming to this realization that religion is more than just the creed and more than just the the rituals that that people go through, and it is about that binding. I mean, that's what religion means is you know something that binds people together. That's like the the root of the word religion, religio, right. in, in, in Latin. Certainly, religions have creeds, and they have worships, and they have, you know, moral codes, but uh, more than anything else, it's that binding element. So I guess that's a pretty good transition to, you've mentioned mimetic theory a couple of times, and this is mimetic, like, like miming, not memes, uh, yeah. which- Yeah, that's uh, the, popularly that, the, cons- misconstrued together. Yeah. Can you kind of give a, I don't know if there's a brief definition, but a, a definition of Mimetic theory, just kind of a rundown of what it is. So it was created
1: by Rene Girard, a professor at Stanford who um, was interested in understanding why all the great works of literature and Western cultures had a similar structure of conflict and drama, that it was a triangular structure in which people were competing over the same thing rather than competing because of differences. Uh, Most of our time, we try to construct meaning behind conflict that we're fighting because of our differences. We're fighting because this race is different from that race, or this country is different from that. In reality, it's actually more the opposite. We're fighting because of how similar we are, the same things that we want to occupy, the same desires, the same statuses. And and so, what what we're doing in desiring is that we're not just desiring in a monkey see, monkey do way. We're desiring what we perceive our neighbors wanting to acquire, you know, from, like, for example, uh, whether it's uh, owning a home, you know, you look at somebody else. You're renting a home; they're owning a home. Well, I'm not going to be quite where I need to be in my being until I own a home. Or whether it's a um, a car, you know, they have a nicer car than I have a beat up car. Or maybe everybody has nice cars, and you see somebody who has a beat up car, and you say, "Well, that sounds like the fashionable thing to do, right?" <laughs> and you see that when you go to farmers market that these. Sometimes rich people will put on overalls to make themselves look poor, and then poor people put on suits to make themselves look rich. So people are always copying what they perceive to be the kind of, uh, you know, height of, of status of where they want to go, you know, and usually it's something like the grass is greener on the other side, you know, because it's different from what I have, it's more attractive than what I have. Rene Girard saw that as some kind of foundational metaphysical desire for the other's being you know, that there's something exquisite and something delightful that is just intoxicating about the other in this kind of big picture sense that we are constantly seeking, that we feel like we have a foundational lack of being in and of ourselves. And so we turn to our neighbor and actually covet their being as if they have something that is just indescribably a little bit more complete than what we seem to have in our life. And, um, So imitation is different, you know, this mimetic imitation, mimesis is simply like another word for imitation. He used the word mimesis to distinguish it from the more rote imitation, like sticking your tongue out at somebody or, you know, the, you know, uh, basic imitational patterns. He wanted to create something that would uh, create a little bit of distance between that type of rote imitation and something which is more about acquisition of perception of what it is that they're striving after. You know, so that's something where your your wants are different from your needs. Your needs are things like survival, mating, having territory, having shelter, having food. Those are, you don't need to copy somebody to do that. Although those things get wrapped up in mimetic desire too. That's why we have veganism versus keto and all this stuff. Those are tribal. You add mimetic desire layers on top of those needs. But fundamentally, needs are different from wants. Once your needs are met, you kind of look to your neighbor to see what they desire and then you copy them and you can do this consciously and unconsciously. But that's what children do. They're imitating everything they see around them for good or bad. And then adults, what they do is they convince themselves that they are not like children and that everything that they desire comes from their own self. So I want, uh, you know, and you see this, you know, when you're a kid, everybody's into skateboarding and you ask them, oh, how did you get into skateboarding? Well, I just really like it. No, you didn't. Everybody else is into skateboarding. You kind of copied them too. But the way they maintain their differentiation is they pick different skateboarding brands. Well, I'm into Element. I'm into World. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, all, you know what I mean? So that's how they maintain their differentiation. Uh, why are you starting a restaurant? Uh, why are you starting a uh, you know Chinese restaurant right next to the other Chinese restaurant? Well, because we have a distinctive difference. So you manif- you emphasize differentiation to hide the underlying copying of of what's going on. Or, um, you know, uh, I was into Star Wars before you were into Star Wars, you know? (laughs) Well, you you don't want to be recognizing that you're copying so much of what you do. And it's very uncomfortable for people to examine themselves to realize, why do I have the haircut that I have? I didn't have this haircut in 2008. I have it in 2021 and everybody else seems to have that haircut in 2021 and they didn't have it in 2008. People don't like looking at that because that's the sausage making of their self. And their self is a very fragile thing to be examining in that level, you know?
0: I like to think about stand up comedy through the years. That seems to be like a illustrative of what you're talking about. How if you look at, Stand-up comedy from like the 60s, maybe. It's just a bunch of one-liners and jokes. And then the 70s, it's it gets a little raunchier. The 80s and 90s had all these characters. Like you had the, the amazing Jonathan doing his crazy magic comedy. And then you had like Jerry Seinfeld who was doing observational stuff. And now if you watch old comedy, it's not funny anymore for some reason. The current state of stand-up comedy is either storytelling like you know John Mulaney and and Mike Birbiglia or kind of getting back to the the characters and and multi-talents of um, like Bo Burnham who does like musical comedy is that like an example of of how yeah sure yeah
1: yeah I mean it it works in so many different levels it's you know you go to one it also wor- works in uh, the opposite, right? So you go to a school, you move to a new town, and it's a small town, and everybody's wearing kind of country western style attire, and they're spitting and they're chewing tobacco or whatever. And so you find the five kids who are dressed gothic, and you become, oh, I'm a rugged individualist. I'm gothic in a <laughs> sea of well, you're, you know, you're doing the opposite of what you see mm-hmm. your neighbor doing. So you're still governed by what your neighbor's doing, right? You're still you're still individual in your uh, desire. You're still interdependent on what your neighbor is desiring to manifest what your desire is, right? Even if it looks on the surface opposite, you know, and that's why contrarianism for in and of itself is something to not cherish because if it becomes just doing the opposite, then, you know, for example, there could be an error in what I've done. Everybody's running into podcasts. I go, oh, I'll go into radio. Well, maybe maybe that's a mimetic blind spot. Maybe it's just doing what the others are not doing and you shouldn't have done that because there is wisdom in the herd right there is wisdom in the crowd mm-hmm. if everybody's running for the exit and you say no there's no fire and you run towards the fire that was a stupid thing but see the herd is a little bit more effective when it comes to those basic those basic survival signals and that's why it's so hard to overcome mimetic blind spots once you get into things like a pandemic, right? Because right. You're, you're you're wired to when everybody's running to a product because that's going to protect you from a pandemic. <laughs> you're wired, even when your intellect says, "Nah, this is a little bit overblown." Why is all the media saying get this product? Why are all the governments saying get this product? Why are they all saying build back better? This sounds like mimetic insanity. But your programming for herd conformity is very powerful when it comes to life or death things like where's the fire, where's the pandemic solution, where's the, uh, you know, this or that. And that's why it gets a little confusing. So Rene Girard's uh, mimetic theory has two components. One is to understand the relationships at a, at a kind of micro scale between you and your neighbor and uh, you covet, and he gets this from the Bible, thou shalt not covet thy neighbors this, that, mm. or anything else. That belongs to thy neighbor. The emphasis is on the neighbor as the model that that you're actually coveting. You covet the neighbor's otherness, but those objects that they have or those statuses that they have are tokens of that neighbor's otherness that you perceive. That if I have that, it will it will scratch the itch of the of the absence of of, of the lack in my being. Right. So you look at somebody and say, well, that person's very foolish, but man, they are good at music. I wish I could have that talent. Everything else about them, I can't stand. But that's pretty good. I wish I could have that. Or that person is, uh, you know, this or that. And so we 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 kind of select like a like a um, like a, like at a buffet, you're selecting cafeteria food items of oh, I want this person's that. I want this person's this. And we do this subconsciously. Um, and uh, what happens is, of course, we w- the reason why we have so much competition in this world is because. In the ancient world, uh, things were very hierarchically structured, right? They were very hierarchical. And so you didn't have a lot of competition between different people's stations. If you were on this, if you were an aristocrat, you were in that lane. If you were a a merchant, you were there. If you were a peasant, you were there. If you were a slave, you were there. You didn't have any aspiration of one day, I'm going to pursue the Roman dream and become just (laughs) like the emperor. You didn't have that. It was just, this is your job. You're going to sweep the stables. You are here. There is no place for you up here. And in fact, the dramas that people would watch would reinforce that because when, you know, a tragedy is somebody going out beyond their fated uh, place in the hierarchy and then falling back down into a horrible defeat. That's the idea of fate. Fate is that you can't escape your place in the hierarchy. You cannot escape the gods. You cannot escape those above you. It will all come crashing down. And that's what those tragic, dramas were about, which was reinforcing people to stay in their lane. But with Christianity, I'm getting ahead here, but I'm just giving a preview. Mm -hmm. Christianity in Gerard's imagination broke. I don't think it's imagination. I think it's the Mm -hmm. historical record. Christianity disrupted the hierarchy that ancient societies had to maintain and prevent Mm -hmm. envy from spiraling out of control. And now that's why we're in a state of hyper-competition. But what's interesting is the more hyper mimetic we are, the more we uh, protest that we're more individualistic than we've ever been. Because again, we don't want to admit that most of the things that we are doing are uh, you know,
0: incited into us by our neighbor. Whew, that's heavy. Okay. So you mentioned Christianity. Is it, is it too early to ask? about that or is so is there more to mimetic theory before we get into well yeah so you got to wonder so why did
1: christianity yeah why did christianity break the hierarchy right yeah that's the question right because again if you or did you want to no yeah keep going uh so if you if you have a society where everybody is so imitation is what makes the best of us and also what makes the worst of us. Uh-huh. Because it's how we master, you know, great painters were proud of being a, a total imitator of their master who trained them or their mm-hmm. pianist or whatever it is. And, and, and that's how we make tools. That's how we make uh, modifications to tools. Um, and all of these things, what they they turn into conflict when we copy not just positive things, but we start copying negative feelings. You know, so you 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 have a uh, you are you copy your neighbor's envy, and you become reciprocally envious of one another, right? And what that does is that causes uh, bad blood in a society where the bad blood spills over to everybody else. So let's say you're having a great time, you're doing great, but now there's a famine. And now you're a little stressed out because you don't know if you're gonna survive. You don't know if there's enough food for everybody. So now there's a pressure on terms of scarcity, which is gonna pressure you to be a little bit more um, uh, in tension with your neighbor. So if there's less resources to go around, that means if everybody is desiring water and water is plenteous, it's a lot easier to have uh, peace But if water is scarce or food is scarce, now you're gonna come into conflict with your neighbor. Wait a second, I think I'm missing some food. Maybe you stole it. And then you start saying, hey, uh, did you see what Bob did? I think Bob's stealing some of our food, our crops. And everybody starts to say, yeah, I think so too. I think Bob is the problem. And then one day Bob says, what are you bothering me about? And they say, see how mean he is? That's confirmation that he is a witch or he's a monster. Uh and Bob, maybe he's a little too tall. Maybe he's a little too fat. Maybe he's a little too short. Maybe he's got a crooked nose. Maybe he came from another community and you guys brought him into the community for years and then now he's acting a little bit weird. He's feeling a little bit suspicious and you start to project onto him the same aggressive aggressive accusation that, he, that you've been throwing onto him. You see it back at him. You know He's looking at you like, what's your problem with me? And then you say, see how he is? And before you know it, you start to have this kind of mimetic snowballing effect by which people start to coalesce around the narrative that yes, Bob is the problem. Bob is stealing our food. He must be a demon. He must be an evil spirit. Whatever it is, he must have displeased the gods because he's got a crooked nose. He's ugly for a reason. You know, he's obese for a reason. He's a freak or he's too small. He must have been cursed by the gods. He must have been cursed by the ancestors. Um, He must have brought a foul spirit from the land from which he came. Whatever it is, it has to be something that kind of makes sense in the time of tension. And everybody kind of agrees this person needs to be devoured or purged or killed to alleviate the bad blood, to alleviate the tension. What's actually happening, they don't think that way. It feels that way. It feels good. That's why when you watch Star Wars and the bad guy loses, you feel catharsis with the movie is doing its job. But if you noticed... The catharsis is going, like you were just saying, comedy is losing. But also, catharsis is being uh, waned out of films lately. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Why
0: do, the, that everything, is? Everything is um, Why do you think that is? Everything is stressful.
1: Why do you think that is? How come you don't feel catharsis when the villain is defeated anymore?
0: There's not a clean-cut, man, yeah, the devil because, got thrown because, down
1: the well, we're good to go. You know, with Darth Vader be, or the Emperor Palpatine being thrown down the well in that yeah. uh, all, Well, scene. all the
0: heroes are either— on one hand, weak and victims. And because now in a victimhood culture, the victim is the hero. So, you know, it's a female superhero who was, who was down on her luck and, you know, completely discriminated against and so on and so forth until she discovered her superhero powers. Or it's an antihero where, you know, the, the person is hard to sympathize with, even though he or she is the protagonist of the story. You can't fully be on their side because, you know, they're, they're a, a ruthless killer or they're a meth cook or whatever it is. There's no real lit line of demarcation between good and evil in, in today's fiction,
1: right, because and, and that would be an inheritance of a society that has been hearing this idea that uh, you know, take out the own plank your own plank mm-hmm. in your eye before you judge the speck in your neighbors, mm-hmm. right and that, if that, if that's a if that's a story that has infected our society for 2,000 years, it's no wonder that we're suspicious of accusations of, hey, that guy's got a speck in his eye. It makes us as a culture say, let's make room for self-examination to see the plank in our eye. And that's going to infect the way we tell stories, which means you're not going to get that same satisfactory, um, hey, uh, man, we sure beat that villain, didn't we? You're going to have a suspicion of scapegoating accusations, right? That's because of Christianity. So I again I jumped ahead a little bit, but going back to what's causing that scapegoating effect is that it's a snowballing of accusations toward a a person who stands out in a sea of sameness. And it has to be somebody who can't fight back. If 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 you accuse somebody who has a very strong faction within the community, you're just going to have civil war. Right? You're going to and that's just going to be a disintegrating society. So whoever makes the antidote to the chaos has to be somebody who fits a proper antidote. He's someone who's a little bit different. Um, maybe could be a king who stayed on the throne too long, could be a, a, a beggar who, again, he's a beggar because the gods don't like him. You know, that's the way the ancient world thought. If you, were, if you were crippled or weak, it was because you deserved it. It wasn't because of, and see, that's totally different from the way we think. Because we are influenced by the work of Jesus in history. And so the scapegoat mechanism was the original lie that held society together from devolving into all against all chaos. Because think about it: if we are so hyper mimetic, if I was to start start talking rude in a tone to you, it could quickly derail this entire podcast. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happens in
0: podcasts where people call out other people. All of a sudden you've got bad blood for a long time. You didn't yeah. need to have that, right? Social media so th- really amplifies that too. I, I, was at a, I was at a convention last year and you know, not many people were wearing masks because it was a libertarian event. And I just, I posted a picture of it on, on a social network and someone commented, where are their masks? And I said, oh, some people are wearing them, some people aren't, it's fine. And he said, all of those people deserve to die. So he's scapegoated the unmasked but what makes it even more ironic, I guess is probably the right word, is that he's HIV positive. He mm-hmm. caught HIV having gay sex back when, back before we had like a good grasp on on prophylactics and stuff like that. So he was a scapegoat twenty years ago, and he doesn't even recognize that. It's so mm-hmm. it's so strange to me that, that that he 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 told me that these people deserve to die without a hint of like remorse or irony or or anything he just thought that because they weren't wearing masks they should die well that's i mean but that's
1: that's very rooted in our anthropology is that if you have violated the taboos that we have set in society, yeah. you deserve to be cursed. You deserve punishment. That You deserve to be sacrificed, in other words, right? Mm. So, so again, that's why I was telling you it's so problematic that we don't understand that religion is thoroughly uh, embedded in the way we think of ideology. Ideologies are just slightly deconstructed religion. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand how those religious-type sacrificial impulses are affecting the way we think and talk and process the world. So your, your friend is just speaking what people have been saying for thousands and thousands of years, and it's irrational on one level, mm-hmm. but, but if you examine it from a Christian perspective, it's irrational. If you examine it from the, the, the longer view of history, it's thoroughly in keeping with what people have always reverted to is, I'm scared, there's a crisis, we need to blame somebody, mm-hmm there are taboos in place to prevent these crises from happening because Gerard looks in the history of different texts and he sees that plagues and famines sometimes are not even literally happening. They're more like a symbolic representation of a conflict of plague, right? A plague of bad blood, a, a plague of tension, mm-hmm. a plague of manic anger and aggression that's sweeping a, a, a tribe or a city or a, a nation. And so when times are scary, socially, uh, you want to have taboos of differentiation mm-hmm. to to form safety. And if somebody says, I am not gonna follow your taboo or your ritual, you are violating their shared sense of transcendence that we are, again, it's religion. What binds us together is the shared transcendence of X, Y, and Z is, what's, is what must be done to prevent death. And if you, if you if you go out of that shared transcendence, you are contaminating the camp. You're contaminating the camp with a different model of desire, which doesn't comport with what everybody else is doing and telling you that your life depends on you doing. And so that's why that person says, well, those people need to die because he's afraid that if they are allowed to do things differently, he will die. Mm
0: -hmm. So So they need
1: to be sacrificed so that the whole nation is not destroyed. Who said that? Caiaphas, remember? Yeah. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest who led the murder of Jesus? He said, it is better that one man die than the whole nation perish. So it's better that that... Ah uh, convention of non mask wearers die, then if everybody starts mimicking their no mask, the whole nation will perish. so it's that, a, it's a
0: it's that sacrificial explains, logic i have been so i've I've been calling progressivism for want of a better term a religion for years, yeah, and I've always criticized it because the difference between the progressive religion and you know more traditional theist religions is that progressivism doesn't have a a means of redemption. Sometimes you're allowed to apologize, but not always, and then be welcomed back into the fold. But if you're one of the people who either doesn't apologize for your transgression or isn't, your apology is not accepted, then you are, you're shunned, you're gone. Contrast that with Christianity where the, the redemption happened on the cross and all you have to do is repent and live faithfully. But see, they had, they had... uh Repentance
1: in uh, the ancient world too. Uh, yeah, but but it was it was to kill the person. You know, so right. if exactly. you were torturing a witch, you got a confession out of her, then you can tell you, you can go ahead and kill her, right? You know uh-huh. what I mean. So the confession c- condemns you too. There is no mercy. Of course, Christians were doing that too because they were still sacrificially addicted to the uh-huh. pagan way of doing things, even though they had the it's before take But again, just to kind of do a little bit of a. Of a of a quick explanation they had a kind of cartesian Christianity but not the foundational you know substrate of Christianity informing their ethical framework but it's easy we can only judge it in light of 2000 years of trying to imitate wow. Jesus it's only in the after effect hundreds of years later that we have the foresight to say oh yeah did you see how they burned that witch mm-hmm. and they said they're a christian well you're judging christianity by Jesus's own framework you know that's why that's why for example that's why America gets, right now, they're trying to scapegoat America as if, you know, America was unique in its sin of slavery. Mm-hmm. We know what's happening, right? Africa and Asia still practice slavery in many mm-hmm. places. Brutal, vicious slavery, where slaves are treated like, like property, like animals, and treated with the most disrespect, horrible things you can imagine. That's still happening in Asia and Africa in 2021. And what do we do in America? We're looking at the plank in our own eye rather than the speck in, the, in our neighbors. And, and the way we psychologically project that, right? So we're still mad at Thomas Jefferson in the 1700s for his slave, but we have no moral outrage about Libyan slave trade or Asian slave. Trade. Which was
0: allowed by the US government's intervention right. in Libya.
1: Yeah. You know, Biden and Obama and Hillary Clinton literally <laughs> created, you've, you've, all right, your first time you vote for Obama, he said no war. So you got dude. Uh-huh. Second time, he's already shown more war and you, and you know that, and you willingly morally sign on to hiring that man to keep his wars going. And because of your actions as a voter for Obama, you kept more people in slavery than would have not been perhaps if, well, I don't know, I guess Romney probably would have done the same thing. But the point is, is you signed on to that. You knew it was wrong and you did it anyways. You participated in the crowd and that's why the left is losing their mind because they're haunted. This is my theory. The left is completely haunted by the kind of collective violence that they continually press the button for to have sacrificial violence. Yeah. And they're haunted by it. So they have to project their guilt onto their neighbor. So they have to say, oh, my neighbor is a right winger who likes Thomas Jefferson. So he's closer to slavery than I am. No, you actually are because you voted for a guy who literally created chaos in Libya and now 2 million people are enslaved in Libya. You did that. That's on you. But they don't want to take responsibility for that. They're haunted by the cross, but they're still trying to scapegoat people uh, so that they don't have to deal with looking in the mirror. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that so like today we don't need to burn witches and we consider it a barbaric practice? And in the 20th century, the totalitarian regimes needed to lock people into gulags and concentration camps and so forth as their scapegoats. Today we've got the the digital gulag where all you know all that happens to you is you get banned off Twitter and, and Facebook, and maybe, you know, you can't accept credit cards with Stripe if you've got a business. Do you think that's the extent of this scapegoating ritual that we're going to see? Or is it going to become physically violent at some point?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's something I think about a lot. You know, it's I want to go back just for a moment because I want to emphasize this. Isn't it interesting, though, that the woke left in emphasizing America's experience with slavery in 2021 and they can't even care one bit for Asia or Africa doing slavery to this day. That assumes a Christianity as their ethic that they want to live by. Oh, yeah. Because they're, assume, they're basically grading on a curve. They're basically saying, wait a second, America, you say you're Christian. You should, have, you should have never touched slavery. That's what they're doing. They're grading on a curve. You see what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. You should have never even had slavery back in the 1800s, 1600s, any of that stuff. And so they're already assuming Christianity as the as the religion that we should all subscribe to. Even in their critique of the West in relationship to, they give cultures that were not steeped in Christianity more of a moral pass. Oh, well, yeah, that's something over there. Or they'll say, well, they do slavery because they're imitating the West. Or, you know, they just come up with all kinds of contorted moral insanity because they're haunted by the cross and they don't want to repent of their violence. So here's the thing. The reason why we are, we are losing, see there are some hierarchical structures that are healthy and there are some that are wrong. Mm-hmm. But both good and bad hierarchies are kind of leveled to chaos when we have a society that has been infected by Christianity but refuses to obey what Jesus says which is to desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So here's, my, here's the whole premise mm-hmm. of my show on this level. The longer we continue, we are in, all right, I don't know how to explain. Okay, we are infected by Christianity. And the longer we refuse to do what Jesus said to do, the infection will rip us apart and tear us apart and destroy us in the most insane chaos you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So Christianity is not just good news. It's good or bad news, depending on if you hear the good news of peace, nonviolence, reconciliation, forgiveness, mercy, and you still press the sacrifice button. That sacrifice button does not create unity and catharsis like it did in the ancient world. It creates disunity. It creates chaos. It creates maddening envy. It creates eternal schism. It's like a curse. So the cross is either a blessing or it's a curse. It's ultimately a blessing, but it functionally becomes a curse when a society has had it infecting its sense-making for how long we've had it. And it refuses to let go of the sacrificial button. And what we're doing is we're trying to always come up with creative solutions for why we can use sacrifice. For example, Jesus says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And we say, well, we're gonna do mercy via sacrifice. We're gonna do... Universal healthcare by force. We're going to do energy too cheap to meter <laughs> yeah, by yeah. force. We're going to do saving people from a pandemic by force. Right? Everything's through sacri- sacrifice and force are the same thing in this in this uh, you know uh, level of looking at it. Right? And so we and so that's the message of Christianity is that you know the idea was is that the sacrificial the scapegoat mechanism was something that humans stumbled onto almost by accident, to avoid the chaos of undifferentiated aggression and envy. And that's what we're in right now. We are in that stage of undifferentiated chaos and envy because we are breaking down the hierarchy structures of sacrifice, but we're not going Christian enough. So you can do two things. You can have society based on the lie of scapegoat violence, or you can have a society based on individual personhood in which we love our neighbors as ourselves, and we do not resist evil with violence. We resist evil with mercy. Doesn't mean you can, you can still have self-defense, but it does. If you think it's evil for your neighbor to have heroin, you don't resist that evil with violence mm-hmm. by imposing your will on them through force. That is the sacrificial way of doing things, but it's broken. I call this the impotent sacrifice. Uh, And you can understand this by looking at Afghanistan, where you would talk, I talked to Marines and they said, David, the level of violence we would need to employ to get the locals to obey our ethical desires was a level of violence that we would never have the stomach to do. Mm. So we didn't want them to stone their daughters for adultery. Well, you're gonna have to stone the dad, you're gonna have to have American (laughs) soldiers stone him or crucify him to get, the level of violence needed to make violence sink in on a sacrificial level for that culture because that culture has not been steeped in Christian deconstruction of sacrificial violence as long as we have. But our own American culture would never stomach having C-SPAN show American soldiers crucifying Afghani locals because they stoned their daughter. We would say, God forbid it. And rightfully so. That's the effect of the cross conquering our Sacrificial appetites, but our sacrificial appetites always puts on the guise of victim concern to maintain to fight another day, to live to fight another day. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. I kind of went uh, off on a little tangent there. Where did you go with something there? There's something you wanted to say? I think
0: maybe. No, I think this is good. We're getting to the crux of redemption via sacrifice versus redemption via. Well, I mean, uh, according to Christian doctrine, the crucifixion was the sacrifice that negated animal or you know even worse human sacrifice i guess where i'd like to go now as we kind of reach towards the end of our conversation so i'm i'm assuming that mimesis is inevitable it's not something to be necessarily resisted so much as harnessed and discerned it would would, right. would that be right yeah so what what do you think an individual needs to do in order to recognize his own mimetic tendencies and, you know, really make the good decisions for himself. Right.
1: right. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, you, you've got to study the life of Jesus and think of it from an anthropological standpoint rather than just a theological standpoint. So mm-hmm. if you look at it from a theological standpoint, you're just going to be looking at how, what does this say about the big other God that is unlike me? Uh, Rather than if you look at it from an anthropological standpoint, you're saying, how does this text in the gospel inform what humankind is like, what mankind is like, right? And so Jesus emphasizes that he's the son of man more than he emphasizes that he's the son of God. True. And if we can look at that, son of man seems to indicate he should give us the full picture of what it means to be human. Son of God would say he gives us the full picture of what it means to be God. So in Jesus' own words, he seems to emphasize, I'm here to show you what human is like more than he's going to show you what God is fully like, because we can't fully grasp that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's what I'm saying. When you read the texts of the gospels, what you're doing is you're engaging in a technology that is far more advanced than any political tract you've read or any ideological self-help book or something uh, you' You're engaging in something that is going to allow you to see how you should imitate Jesus, to avoid mimetic conflict in your own life, to, um, to avoid the reciprocal aggression that comes with human conflict. And, and, and then eventually, you're going to see how to avoid uh, creating a, contributing to a social environment in which scapegoating is this impotent sacrificial mechanism that we're still pushing. 2,000 years after Jesus said it was finished. Mm -hmm. What was finished on the cross? The sacrificial mechanism. See what I mean? So that was what was finished on the cross. That was the point by which we no longer had the excuse to say we are ignorant of what we are doing. Because when you're in the ancient world, you are so owned by groupthink, and when it spills off into violence, you don't even see what you're doing. You are really convinced that the person you're persecuting really deserves what they're getting. And what Christianity does is it says okay we're going to step into that sacrificial machine we're going to break it by putting someone in there who is not going to admit guilt he is going to maintain his innocence but he's not going to reciprocate the aggression that's bestowed on him mm. so he's not doing any of the options that the world continues to say are our only options the world says you are guilty admit guilt and submit and and then what Jesus says is you're forgiven I will step into the machine. I'm not going to require you to sacrifice for me. I will self-sacrifice instead of you sacrificing for me. So I will give way rather than you having to be giving way to me. So that is the question of our time. Are we going to practice self-sacrifice or sacrifice of another? Sacrifice of another is ultimately the foundational um, uh, idea behind uh, political ideology Mm -hmm. and our culture. Um, and so that's why people say, "Oh well, if people have adverse effects from this new uh, pharmaceutical product." Well, it's okay because it was in this—it was in the effort of trying to save the world from the global pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. So it's okay that some are sacrificed if they had adverse effects. Even if it's a kid, that's so insane to me. You know yeah. that these kids are dying from some of these adverse effects. Young young men, thirteen-year-old or whatever, and oh, it's okay because that was a sacrifice for the greater good. No, that's that's the ancient world of thinking about things. We have to get rid of that out of our hearts. And it starts by, again, for libertarians, their tendency is to cling to that romantic lie of the self that their desires are from their own heart and they didn't get it from anybody else and they're rugged individualists. And what happens with that is that it, you, you cannot get liberty by... Um, I I, I with, by by getting um, you know hearts and minds to accept some kind of intellectual uh, apparatus in their head that's not how it works it's a gut thing it's a deep passion thing and it starts with the passions that you're imitating if you're imitating um, gurus who are going to lead you back down the 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 lie of of the of the self then you'll you'll get trapped in a bunch of of uh, uh, choices that are not really gonna give you what you thought they were gonna give you. But if you imitate Jesus, what Jesus does is he says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, forgive even your enemy. He washes the feet of those who are lesser talented than him. So why don't we imitate that downward self-sacrificial uh, posture in the way we we treat people? That doesn't mean giving in. See, there's there, there's a fine line between that because there's a satanic perversion of that where you say, okay, well, admit guilt. If they call you extra racist because you're white, just say you are, and that's somehow a Christian. No, that's not. That's a satanic perversion of the good stuff where you are doing, Jesus didn't, when he was persecuted, he didn't say, you're right, I'm bad, I, you know, come and beat me up. It's okay. He didn't say that. He did not acknowledge their lie. And that's so important that you don't acknowledge a lie. You don't acknowledge the accusation. And so two things that I tell people all the time on a big picture standpoint to alleviate violence, is one, tell the story of victims of sacrifice. So find out a story, Uh, a Mm -hmm. woman who is in prison, a woman who, uh, a family who was raided unlawfully or in an illegal unconstitutional way and died, a dog that was shot by a cop, you know, a a person whose business was destroyed because of the lockdowns, tell their story. Uh, Let their children's voices speak if they wanna let their children speak. Let the tears be seen give the victim a voice. That has a power in and of itself. That is what we practice when we imitate the gospel technology. Uh, You know, the gospels are a text, a piece of media that gives an account of the victim of a community where he is wrongfully persecuted and the camera stays on his side of the situation. He doesn't go to the crowd's perspective. All mythology is is the same thing, but the camera stays on the perspective of what the crowd thinks about the matter. The gospel stays on the victim side. And the victim is not just the poor person, it can also be the rich person. The victim could be the king as well as the beggar. And that's again, a problem of victimism. The victimism wants to make everything, the only scapegoats are the poor, the only scapegoat is uh, a minority. No, scapegoats come in all shapes and sizes mm-hmm. and we can all unite around no more scapegoating, right?
0: I think this explains my antipathy towards punitive measures. I've always thought that, you know, locking up criminals because they did wrong, I've always been a little weird about that. Like, it it doesn't seem to be our place to decide what the proper consequence for a behavior is. That's not to say, you know, don't separate from society people who pose a danger to society. But if you're doing it because of their actions rather than for the benefit of the culture, except in a superstitious, you know, sacrificial scapegoat type attitude, it seems, I don't know if unjust is the word, but it seems outside of the, like, realm of human wisdom. Do you think that punitive imprisonment is scapegoating? Is that? I think on some level it can be, although I, I do believe
1: that, you know, given the system that we have, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if someone is murdering somebody, you know, it's not necessarily the ideal way of doing it, but I do think there should be, like you said, a place for separation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just say, you know, oh, you murdered someone, we love you, keep going, you know, like, what is that? You know, that's right. not actual, that's not actually, You you have to have self-defense it's the way i look at it is i always take these laws and i say okay what would happen if this was dependent on the individual agency right you know so you're walking down the street you see someone being assaulted you have the means to stop it you grab the attacker you put Mm -hmm. them on the ground you restrain them until the victim is safe and the person can be kept away from society for a bit uh because i do think and that's where you get the law thou shalt not kill or you know Thou sure. shalt not assault, and therefore it, it's not a perfect system, but it's the system we have. And so, I do believe if you know that there should be in the system we have a place for timeout for people who kill mm-hmm. people, right? If someone's just stabbing, you and you say, "Okay, I love you, please go on," but they're in a psychopathic rage, or uh, you know they go off and do it again, that's you're not. That's not really a loving, merciful way because you you could have. Physically kept them away from more victims, but you allow them to keep doing their harm. So I do believe there's a place for self-defense. That's a that's a that's a minimal role. And and again, in a perfect uh, utopian society or something, we could think of. Not saying that in a disparaging way. I'm just saying, in a better world, I'm sure there was a better way to have uh, separation. Mm -hmm. And I do think a lot of us. I do think you know. Here's an interesting thought, okay? So I do think that, that these like serial killers and these, and not just the extreme ones from the 70s and stuff, but like I think a lot of that stuff is the possession of the spirit of empire, right? So I think if we would get rid of our American empire, if we would get rid of our incarceration state for so many of the nonviolent things, I think a lot of that spirit of violence and aggression for physical crimes would actually kind of dissipate naturally, systemically, right? Right. So I, I think that the the epidemic of, of these um, uh, serial killers in the 70s was probably a reflection of the cultural rot at the time of the 70s, mm-hmm. that if we had repented of a lot of our collective violence as it was back then, would have alleviated the situation by which those kinds of spirits would manifest. And I mean spirit in, a, in an anthropological sense of the scripts that we're picking up along the way from our neighbor, right? You know, you know, Charles Manson even says, it. he says, look at what you guys do. If you watch his interview, he says, look at, we've got these children's magazines where we're teaching kids to buy guns, these military guns. He says, I am a manifestation of this society, you know, and it doesn't take him, he is still responsible for what he does, of course, but he's trying, he's like a joker figure who's revealing that which is unseen in the foundational fabric. I mean, he's, he's, he's playing into that role, you know, of I am the measure of your rotten society. He's,
0: he's knowingly playing into that. It's but, probably not a consequence that the 70s, in addition to all those serial killers, also had a ton of cults. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting too.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, man, it would be great to have more contemporary history. Yeah. Uh, using, you know, like having more contemporary historical analysis using mimetic theory to kind of look at the different iterations of, wow. you know, there's so much room for uh, for research here, you know, and I'm what I'm trying to do is kind of be like a, Johnny Appleseed for these ideas to kind of, you know, uh, spread them to different websites, spread them to different shows and get people to take their skill sets that they have and use it to advance
0: this way of looking at the world, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Let me try to boil down your advice for individuals. And that is, even if you don't, won't, or can't Except the theological doctrines of Christianity, the imitation of Christ is the best way to achieve a peaceful and free society. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, the idea is is that you know, if he was only a man, of course, it would be more miraculous the impact he's had in history. Yeah, true, <laughs> so, true. true. The line that of, is true. So, so you know, he, to 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 say. To say the things he says, the the idea, you know, he says that to learn what my message is all about, you have to understand what this means. The stone mm-hmm. the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, that explains everything in our society in one little image. The idea is, it was an old idiom about the building of the temple where they would take the misshapen stone that didn't fit in the groove of the of the brick laying and they would throw it to the side because it was a different shape that's like a scapegoat it's different yeah, yeah. and he's thrown out but at the end it becomes the uh or capstone would be the word it becomes the capstone the final stone that you put because you've you've finished the whole brick wall and now you've got the final piece and so the idea is in the way Jesus is using this stone. He also says, by the way, that anyone who encounters this stone will be broken to pieces. That's what's happening to our society right now because we refuse to heed the call, which is he exposes the magic, magic trick of human history. He shows why we were gobbling up people in a ritualistic way. He, he literally creates his own ritual so if he is merely a man, he's the most genius man. You should want to study every word and action of this man for the rest of your life. You should be more biblically um, uh, rigorous in your analysis of this man's life than even the best Christians you know, if you're not a Christian. Because, it, you know, people read 500-page books of Steve Jobs' biography to get figure out how to become a startup entrepreneur, right? This guy split time, you know, this guy... Uh, you know, redefined. He had, if he was merely a man, how in the world could he have possibly understood how to break the worldwide matrix of sacrificial groupthink? I mean, this idea. I didn't even get into the resurrection. I mean, all these <laughs> dying and rising gods that you see in mythology, and he's and he does a literal resurrection. All the mythological resurrections create unity, and his historical resurrection he creates disunity. Just like he said, I have come to bring a sword, a sword to cut through the false unity of sacrificial violence. That's exactly mm. what we're inheriting two thousand years later. So the more we keep pressing for sacrificial violence, the more it will continually tear our society apart and tear ourselves apart ourselves, because we become possessed by the spirit of our age. That's why one of the first, you know, when you, when Jesus goes to a pagan town he is confronted by a demon-possessed man who calls himself Legion. And he's possessed by the spirit of the Roman imperial way of doing things. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't cast the man out of the community. That's what the pagans do. That's what scientism does today. Mm -hmm. What he does is, is he says, he casts the spirit of the crowd and he, he sends it back to a herd. He sends it back to pigs. You know, the symbol of the Legion was a war pig. So it's very political, that text. He's taking, he's, he's casting the crowd out of a person rather than casting a person out of the crowd. Yeah. And he's sending it back into a herd of pigs. To, it's a satire on the Roman empire saying this, wow. spe- this spirit of self-condemnation that this man is trapped in, in his head, I'm taking it and I'm throwing it to the animals. Mm-hmm. I'm throwing it to the very animal that is the symbol of the legion that had suppressed that whole community to begin with. And and so you don't get Roman Empire if you don't have self-hatred. You see? See how it works? As you as an individual, if you are kept in self-hatred, that's the matrix by which everybody keeps manifesting Roman Empire. And so if we don't want to have American Empire, we must get rid of the prison of self-hatred in our own hearts because we're all possessed by legion to one degree or another. And the things that we think will make us happy are not necessarily what are really making us happy. It's actually that spirit of legion that's driving us to have hypermimesis and we don't even know what we're doing. And that's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He uh, He wasn't making a platitude. He was making an anthropological analysis as a scientist on the cross. He was saying, Father, do not hold this against them because they don't know what they're doing. They are possessed by the spirit of legion in different ways, and they think what they're doing is right and good, Mm -hmm. but it's not. So let's, and so he says that with the knowledge that that text will be preserved by his followers and that that story would unleash a contagion of what he calls the Holy Spirit, which is a community of people gathered together, not by sacrificial violence, but by self-sacrifice. By sacrificing that ego part that allows you to be hateful to people who've hurt you. Because, see, what's ultimately driving victimism is that these bullies have been bullied themselves and they're replaying that same trauma out, you know? And they're replaying that same trauma out and they want you to provide them with the solution by your response to help them uncover how to get out of that original trauma. And so that's where Christianity comes in. So that's the only place we're gonna have any breakthrough. And that's why I tell people two things you can do. I said the first one, tell stories of victims. And number two, use your discernment to create technologies or help people create technologies that can alleviate scarcity so that people can have abundance. Because our job Mm -hmm. in this world is not just to heal victims, that would be a static nature, right? Our job is to go forward, right? Because one of, the, one of the miracles that Jesus does is he does the miracle of the fishes and loaves, right? And that, that miracle was basically a prophecy. And the prophecy, this is how I interpret this. The prophecy is that we will, we will be able to escape scarcity, right? Meaning through our own nonviolent voluntary interactions, we can overcome the effects of scarcity. He doesn't take the fish and cut it into microscopic pieces for everybody Mm. in the crowd. He just does this thing where more fish comes out of the same five fishes or whatever, right? And so it's a a visual of what, because he says, you would do greater things than I, meaning those who imitate me in history collectively as my body. And you're gonna belong to somebody. You're always gonna be a part of somebody. So don't worry about that word, I will be a part of Christ's body. You will always be a part of, I would rather be a part of the body of Jesus than the body of, of, uh, of uh, you know, Bill Gates or the body of uh, Jay-Z or whatever. You know, we're always going to be a part of somebody. Mm-hmm. The question is, who are we going to imitate? And if we imitate Jesus, that means we're going to be self-sacrificial. It means we're going to be loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. If you hate yourself, you will not love your neighbor properly. It's so important. And so that's kind of, you know, when we have that post-scarcity framework, I believe that that's showing that we can alleviate a lot of the sacrificial violence we have by pulling away from that impulse and then creating technologies that alleviate energy scarcity. Mm-hmm. Disease, disease is a kind of scarcity, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a scarcity on quality of life. It's a scarcity on life itself if it kills you too before your time. So that is a big, scary scarcity. That's why so much of Jesus's life is spent healing people of diseases. And that's what we should be doing. We should be curing cancer. We should be curing pollution. We should have energy too cheap to meter. We should have anti-gravity technology. We should figure out what those UFOs are that the the, the military's talking about and figure out how to get that for everybody else, Mm -hmm. you know? That's what we should be doing. We're not spending our time fighting over who's the most victimized. That's how the system maintains itself is everybody's fighting over who's the most victimized.
0: Huh, yeah. So basically entrepreneurship is the the antidote. Yeah. Kinda. Okay, David, I've gotta go. I really appreciate your time today. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you online?
1: Yeah, just uh, go to a neighborschoice.com or you can search for David Gronoski on any of the podcast platforms and uh, watch my show Monday through Friday, four to 6 p.m. Eastern time live or the podcast You know has all the episodes on there too.
0: Awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to David for joining me today. And thanks to you as always for tuning in. If you like what you heard today and you want to make sure you never miss an episode, head to blackbird.substack.com. Sign up with your email address. You can sign up for the free option, which will get you every episode of the podcast and the free written content that I put out. If you sign up with a couple of bucks a month, then you'll be helping me out. And also you'll get some premium content, early episodes, that sort of thing. Don't forget to head to buenterprises.com. You can find the link to that in the show notes. And until next time, live free. (laughs)